It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a bright but wintry morning in the Middle East. A group of Palestinian men and a few children are picking their way around a scene of destruction. Shattered glass, broken poles and sheets of crumpled corrugated metal. They stand in the middle of it all, pointing and surveying the ruins of their neighbourhood. Above them, a smouldering hole in the side of a building reveals what must have been somebody's home. The tables and chairs are now covered in dust, glass and shards of broken concrete. This was the immediate aftermath of an Israeli raid on the 26th of January on the Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. At least nine Palestinians were killed. Seven had been identified by the Israeli forces as militants. One was an old woman. But in this part of the world, one tragedy inevitably begets another. The following night, on the Shabbos, a Palestinian attacker killed seven Israelis outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem. And then, last week, Israeli soldiers killed at least five Palestinian fighters near Jericho in the occupied West Bank. And then on Friday, a Palestinian drove into a group of people outside an Israeli settlement, killing two, including a six-year-old, before being shot dead himself by the police. This lethal escalation brings the total number of Palestinians killed so far this year to at least 40, and the number of Israelis killed to nine. It's the deadliest start to a year in a decade and a half. Back in the Janine refugee camp, a young Palestinian boy runs cheerfully around his house. Baby Jawad is named after his grandfather, Jawad Bawakna, who was one of the Palestinians killed by Israeli forces this year. One of Jawad's aunts explains proudly that baby Jawad's first word was katibe. 
his first uh, word was Katibe. Was Katibe? Katibe Jinin. It's like uh, a youth uh, resistance. It's right. it's uh, it's their nickname, the resistance fighter. Right. Katibe, the youth resistance fighters. For the children who grow up here, without hope, surrounded by violence, rage and revenge, what kind of future awaits them? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the West Bank children who dream of martyrdom. My name is Josh Glancy. I am special correspondent for the Sunday Times uh, and get dispatched to everywhere from Ipswich to uh, Janine on special missions, I suppose. And you've just been on one of those to Janine, to to the West Bank. Tell us a bit about that. Why, why were you there? Well, there's been an uptick in violence um, in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine in recent months. Today was the deadliest day in the occupied West Bank in two decades. Israeli forces raided Janine this morning and killed nine people. In the south, two rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip. Israel replied with airstrikes on the territory. A Palestinian gunman killed at least seven people outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem today, a day after Israeli forces killed nine Palestinians in a raid on the West Bank city of Janine. I went basically to go to the West Bank and to Jerusalem and other parts of the country and really get a proper sense of how things are at the moment. It feels like we are slipping into one of the darker periods from this region. So I I really wanted to go and speak to people in different parts of the country, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, get a a proper sense of um, how people were feeling. In order to find out what was brewing, just tell us a bit about some of the people you met. Well, perhaps the most symbolic place for Palestinian resistance to Israel inside the West Bank is is the refugee camp in Janine. Now, Israel has raided the camp a couple of times in recent weeks, uh, killing several militants. And there have also been some civilian deaths as well. Uh, It is really a, a cauldron of hate and resistance towards Israel. And a lot of militancy and indeed terrorism has come from there. So I wanted to go to the camp and see how people were feeling. I've never been there before. I, I wanted to see what it was like, honestly, and get a sense of how they view the future and, and, and what they think should come next. It's a strange thing because you have Janine, the town, and then you have the refugee camp, and they're, they're right next to each other. The town is fairly poor, not a very prosperous place, um, and there are symbols of resistance and martyrdom around. But it's a relatively normal, down-at-heel Middle Eastern town, I would say. The camp is is a slightly different proposition. I say camp, it it is a place with permanent structures and buildings. It's not tents by the side of the road. But it is a place with its own identity, and there's about 10 or 11,000 people living there. And it really is, as I said, a hotbed of resistance. And so you walk around there and, and you can see everywhere there's posters of martyrs, of fallen militants, past and present. You know, every time someone falls, 
uh, a new poster will go up. Every house where a person has fallen will have, you know, posters plastered all over the doors and the cars. You go to a toy shop and next to the Barbies and the teddy bears are necklaces of fallen soldiers, you know, fallen martyrs, fallen fighters. It is a place really consumed with a sense of death and a sense of uh, vengeance. I must say, I was visiting there in the aftermath of two Israeli incursions, so emotions were even more heightened than usual, but it really is an extremely angry place in a lot of ways. And Josh, when you talk about martyrs and posters of martyrs, I mean, what exactly do you mean? Well, to be a martyr is to is to have died in the cause of fighting Israel in this context. It's quite an Islamic concept. So if you talk to Palestinian Christians, a lot of them don't necessarily use the same kind of language around this. But there is a sense that you will be rewarded in heaven for a death in that cause. Obviously, a lot of different religions have have martyrdom. Christianity and Judaism have martyrdom too. But it is really a kind of central feature of places like the Jenin refugee camp. The martyr in in Palestine, you know, there will often be money paid to their family. They will be celebrated and honoured for their sacrifice. I went into the house of mourning of uh, Jawad Bawakna, who was a, a teacher who was shot, a 57-year-old teacher who was shot during an Israeli incursion on the 19th of January. And it was a house of mourning. So uh, his three of his daughters welcomed me into the house of mourning. Um, they were all dressed in, in black. And I didn't quite find what I expected there. Tell me about that. I mean, how did it feel walking in, knowing, I mean, it sounds very somber, knowing it's a, a house of mourning? Yes. And I, the first thing I did was offer my condolences. And, and, and then it was explained to me that actually they're not really looking for condolences. In fact, they were asking for congratulations. Congratulations. Yes, because their father had been martyred. Um, and for them, they see being upbeat or be celebrating these deaths as a form of resistance. So they see misery as a form of giving in to Israeli occupation. So this was very hard for me to get my head around, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay, well, um, can you just start by saying thank you for having me into the home? Mm-hmm. I was being quite sort of somber and, and almost ponderously somber, and they were laughing and joking. That's not to say that they didn't feel sad or upset about what had happened. I'm sure they did. Two of the sisters had witnessed the death, but it was a, a kind of deliberate choice almost to make light of it as a point of resistance, which I found very strange. It sort of it was like the world turned upside down almost. Yeah. And what did they say to you? Well, I was asking them about their father and they said he was a teacher, a sports teacher in the camp, were very widely liked. He was full of life. He used to work every day. Yeah, he was a feminist. and He ran the marching band. He loved to watch Barcelona football club at night to relax. Everybody loves him because he taught the young people in the camp uh, sports yeah. in their schools. 
and uh, his death affected a lot of young people too because yeah. they knew him. They used to hang around the, him because he was uh, fun to be around. He yeah. used to always laugh. They showed me lots of videos of him playing with his grandson and the grandson was running around. He was also called Jawad, so he had the same name. And, you know, it was very sweet. It was, there was a lot of pathos. But then I was talking to the grandson and they said, oh, he spoke his first word recently. Which is a, a reference to the resistance fighters in Janine. So and they were saying this is a point of pride, but it made me very sad, really, because you just thought, well, that's his first word. Uh, he's going to grow up in this environment. And I said, you know, what do you want for Jawad? What, do you, what kind of future do you want from him? They said, well, you know, we will educate him, we will teach him to hope, but we have to be realistic about where he is and how he's growing up and who, what, what the forces around him are and, uh, and what the likely outcome of that will be. What does that mean? What do they see for his future? Well, I mean, they didn't spell it out, but but some form of you know they they some form of martyrdom is is it's not something that everyone necessarily wants or is aiming towards, but it's it's something that they expect may well come to them. Everybody inevitably joins the resistance. I think almost they feel like there's no choice because it's the way they see it. It's being done to them, and actually, you know, I said how do you feel in the aftermath of your father's death? They said, well, we don't... This is how they put it to me. We don't feel that different to before. She's saying it's Othmil's anger of feeling all the time. It doesn't matter now or before he got, her father was killed because mm. there's his death came because of the occupation and the occupation was there before and the occupation is there now so that's what really is the ever-present and that was how they framed it to me they see you know Grief would be giving in. Do they talk about what they do want? Do they talk about revenge? Yes, I mean, I asked Jawad's daughter, Allah, does she want revenge? Does she want to see payback? And she said, yes. You know, she said um, that the synagogue attack in Nevayakov, and that happened a few days after Jawad's death. Uh, she said it felt soothing. It felt like a form of revenge, not just for them, but for all the Palestinian people. It felt... Uh soothing because mm. uh, it was a kind of revenge mm. but it was for all the Palestinians yeah. yeah it was for it's hard to imagine the, the slaughter of seven civilians being soothing, but but that is the depth of antagonism and, and the mindset that, that is in place. Is is that how most people there feel? I mean, tell us a bit about some of the other people you met. I don't think any of them <laughs> expressed particularly contrasting sentiments. I mean, I met a young man called Mahmoud Tawalbe, 17. He was helping out at the social club. Seemed like a nice young man. And... Um, 
you know, I asked him about his future and, and he he said he didn't really think he had one. You know, he sort of, he again, kind of expected that some form of resistance and martyrdom was was really the only path on offer for him. You know, Mahmoud Tawalbe's uncle was also called Mahmoud Tawalbe. He was a very prominent fighter and, and terrorist. And it was pointed out immediately to me that he was named after this revered fighter. You can imagine the weight that that puts on a young man's shoulders. I mean, everyone will know someone. If, if it's not in your direct family, it'll be a cousin or a, a friend or a schoolmate. And, you know, I, I approached one young man in the street. I knew nothing about him. I just approached him with a translator and, and asked him if he'd chat to us. He said, yeah, I'll talk to you. And I said, oh, you know, how did the incursions, how have they affected you? He said, well, my, my brother was killed and he was just smoking and looking at us very blankly in the street. And then he said, actually, I, I can't talk to you. Not because not he wouldn't, he just couldn't. You don't have to look very hard to find people who are affected. Um, so, you know, there are significant economic roadblocks, educational roadblocks t t to these young people. But there is also a, a culture that is, is very focused on fighting, resistance, revenge and martyrdom. Just give us a sense of the history of this camp. So 1948, you have a wave of refugees as a result of the war between Israel and the Palestinians and various other Arab countries. So they, they've just been displaced by the fighting? Well, by the fighting, I mean, again, this is highly contested historical territory, but um, there was a move by some in Israel to, to try and push Palestinians out of what became Israel. There were also lots of other factors at play, uh, and it was a war. People do often up sticks and leave during a war. So was this refugee camp sort of built initially as a temporary measure? Was there yes. a sense that they'd be going home? Yes, and the question people often ask you is, well, that was 75 years ago. So why are they still there? Why are they still being classed as refugees? Why is it still called a camp? Uh, again, the answer to that is, is very highly contested. They will tell you because Israel wants us here to be miserable. It eventually wants to just push us out entirely. Others will tell you actually that it has been useful to the Palestinian cause to have these people there because there is this idea of the right of return that one day people will be able to go back to Haifa and to Jaffa and to reclaim the land that they view as taken from them. So in some ways they are orphans of the history. Janine in 2002, as some people will remember, was the site of what became known as the Battle of Janine. And it was a pretty major Israeli incursion at the height of the Second Intifada. And tanks rolled into the town and there was a lot of fighting. Um, over 50 Palestinians killed and over 20 Israeli soldiers killed as well, which is unusual. What's interesting now is that you have this younger generation, people like Mahmoud Tawabe, who I met, who is, is named after someone who died in that battle, but doesn't remember it, was born after it happened. But yeah, it is this sense of, uh, it is a massive symbol for everyone in the area, really. And just remind us about the intifadas. The intifada really just means uprising. There's been two intifadas thus far. The first one started in 1987. There was a lot of rock throwing, tire burning, protest, riot, demonstration. It got very heated, very violent. Israel responded pretty strongly and there was a lot of fighting, a lot of clashes. And it went on for, for several years. And then in 2000, you have the second intifada breaks out and there was an outbreak of violence then. And this was when I was a teenager and I remember it really well because 
there was this wave of suicide bombings in Israel, pizza parlors, on buses, at nightclubs, you know, 10, 20, 30 people dying in these big suicide bombings. And then obviously the response, you had things like the incursion into Janine, you had Israeli tanks surrounding Ramallah, the Palestinian capital, the capital of the West Bank. And there was a lot of damage done. I mean, a lot of people died, but also it changed both societies permanently. The left in Israel, which up until that point had been a very strong political force, it was founded as a left-wing country, which had been pushing this idea of we will give land for peace, we will find a, a two-state settlement. That idea really lost its currency during the Second Intifada. So we are still in some ways living in the world that the Second Intifada wrought. And I suppose part of the concern now, part of the reason I went to the Middle East was because there are suggestions at the moment that this current violence we're seeing might lead us to a third intifada. Coming up, why have things reached a crisis point again, with a spectre of a third intifada looming? That's in just a moment. I'm Ben Taylor, editor of The Sunday Times. News can feel chaotic and confusing at the moment. Through our unmissable journalism, we'll make sense of it for you every weekend. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Josh, from your recent travels to Israel and to the West Bank, did you get a sense of why tensions seem to be rising so quickly again? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. What's really troubling people at the moment is that the attack in Jerusalem, in Neve Yaakov, and several other attacks have been carried out by young men who are not connected to the big militant organisations and are acting either as lone wolves or in, in 
kind of small radical splinter factions. There's one of those in Nablus called the Lion's Den, which is keeping a lot of Israeli generals up at night. And what's inspiring them? Well, it depends who you ask. The IDF, the Israeli army, would told me that they felt it was some of the things that radicalize young men in other countries too. So TikTok and Instagram, they're sh- sharing a lot of things on social media, egging each other on. They said, you know, actually a lot of them got very bored during coronavirus and then were suddenly let out again. But I do think there's probably a deeper sense of frustration, desperation. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, which is really does a lot of security cooperation with Israel, its authority is quite weak at the moment. Its leader, Mahmoud Abbas, is 87. He's ailing. There's a scramble over who's going to succeed him. A lot of internal politics happening in Ramallah. So then maybe they're not looking at the broader picture. And really, if the Palestinian Authority isn't keeping a lid on things in the West Bank, then there are these militant groups. And then also these younger men as well, who are willing to turn to violence and to violent resistance quite quickly. And then you also do have a very right-wing government that's been elected in Israel, mm. the most right-wing government we've seen in Israel with two cabinet ministers who are really quite fringe figures, very vocally anti-Arab at times, anti-Palestinian in their sentiments, and they're now in the government. I mean, tell us a bit about them. Yeah, so they're called um, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich. And they really come from the religious Zionist movement they really are zealots, I would say, is, is the best word to describe them. They don't believe in a Palestinian state. They believe in expanding Israeli settlements uh, and a very uncompromising attitude towards the situation and the conflict. You know, th- these are people who've been arrested for their own ac- political activities in the past. You know, as, as I, I think I compared Ben Gvir to, to Tommy Robinson in the UK, and that's not an exaggeration. You know, they were thought of as as racist fringe figures. So it's quite a big deal to have them in the government. So these are clearly two very controversial characters who are now suddenly in power. You know, are there fears about the direction of travel in terms of the settlements? Because in the last couple of years, we've already seen the settlements spreading. Yeah, you know, this government is more, I guess, pro-settlement than previous ones have been, more openly so. The settlements have expanded we haven't seen many new settlements being built for a long time. I think only one, really, in, in recent years. And there is a sense amongst some Israelis I spoke to that they were saying, actually, most of the people who wanted to move to the settlements sort of already have. So you're not seeing a necessarily a population explosion, but they do tend to have a lot of children. And I think certainly the Palestinians do feel squeezed. They feel affronted. And they feel like what Israel is doing is changing the facts on the ground so that the viability of a Palestinian state is just is diminished over time and corroded until it just becomes almost unworkable. So there is, yeah, the settlements are a big concern. So you have settlements, you have outposts, which are kind of attempts to create new settlements, if you like. Uh, there was an illegal outpost that was taken down by this current government a few weeks ago. Now, they're going to be less inclined to do that than some other Israeli governments would have been, but they did still do it. So It's not absolute anarchy, but certainly it's another dynamic that's unhelpful and is obviously causing a lot of distress to Palestinians. 
is is some of this building up, you know, is there a sense that some of this might have come from the trouble over the last year or two where people have been moved out of neighbourhoods in East Jerusalem even? Well, again, that's certainly that's certainly a source of a lot of discontent. Neighbourhoods like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and parts of East Jerusalem that are contested. These are all ingredients going into this mixture. I mean, so there was a 13-year-old boy who shot a father and son in Silwan in the past month. And, and you know, he'd written a note before he, he went out saying sort of God and martyrdom. So again, it's a mixture of the kind of facts on the ground and the reality people are facing, and then also the the culture that's perhaps in, encouraging this kind of activity. And you know, as ever with this conflict, it does always just seem to to come back to Jerusalem in one way or another. Josh, while you were there, you visited this house of mourning in the camp in Janine. You also visited a house of mourning on the Israeli side. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I went to the Ateret Avraham Synagogue in Neve Yaakov, which is where the shooting took place. And then just nearby, there was a shiva house, a house of mourning for the Morali family, whose son, Asher, age 14, had been shot and killed in the attack. So we walked in. I mean, it was a strange scene. It was obviously a very poor house. There's soda and biscuits and cakes everywhere and pizza boxes. Upstairs, you have the mother, Chaya, uh, Asha's mother, sitting very quietly, calmly, looking very crestfallen with a group of women surrounding her, sort of offering condolences. Um, and she said to me, I, I, I don't feel any anger. I just feel, I just feel pain. And, you know, a very striking contrast to the House of Mourning in Janine. And then downstairs, Aaron Morelli, Asher's father, sort of tear-streaked, bearded, chain-smoking, his shirt ripped, which is the, the custom at a Jewish shiver, you rip your clothing, was giving this kind of slightly, I mean, manic sermon about his child, about his son. You know, he was a beautiful boy and he studied and it was a he said he was such a soul, my boy. I can't believe he's not here. It was a very um, difficult scene. Um, but this uh, Aaron Morali, the father, he just seemed almost, he was in another place almost. You, you, I, uh, you couldn't really reach him. He was just talking and crying. <laughs> It was um, it was a difficult afternoon there actually. Oh, and where where exactly was this? Where do the where do the family live? They live in a, an apartment building in Neve Yaakov, which is a settlement in East Jerusalem. So it's over what they call the Green Line, which is the line that divides where Israel and the West Bank was before the war in 1967. So it's a settlement, but it is part of the sort of Jerusalem conurbation, if you like. So people in Israel often tend to make a distinction. This isn't a distinction Palestinians would necessarily make between settlements that are quite well-established neighborhoods of Jerusalem and settlements that are 
you know, outposts way out into the occupied territories. You know, as I said earlier, Jerusalem is is this patchwork of neighborhoods and highly contested spaces. And so these these people were killed by someone who, who lived in the neighboring town. Given that these, you know, these settlements are highly contested, um, you know, they provoke anger on all sides, really. And we know that this government seems to be much more open to them. I mean, having visited, do you think tensions are only going to get worse? I think there is a sense that, that things are getting worse. I mean, after I left, there was fighting in Jericho. And as I said, there are a lot of guns in the West Bank at the moment. There's a lot of anger. And you do have this tough Israeli government that is going to respond to any provocations quite severely. So the ingredients are all there for a pretty difficult time. But how and when they get worse is too contingent to know. The truth is the world has has somewhat tired of this conflict. Uh, it doesn't make the situation on the ground any better, but there there is just this endless situation and it's drawing these young men into its grip, a new generation. It's, t- it's, it's already taking new lives. And, and there is the sense that there will have to be more blood spilt on both sides. And, and if you look on the Israeli side, they don't even see anyone they can even begin to talk to. They just view the Palestinians as, as being impossible to deal with right now. I'm generalizing, obviously. But if you look at the Palestinian side, well, they, they see this occupation, they see this encroachment on their land. They see their own Palestinian authority as not really doing that much about it. And they don't really see how they get out of this bind. And so you just have this sense that, that there are two people who are so divided by history and divided by hatred, particularly on the extremes, that a path forward just isn't clear. Ultimately, it will always demand attention at some point, And we seem to be at one of those points now. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, special correspondent for The Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. You can find all of Josh's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel with production help from Shema Bacht. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.